After 25 years in the fashion industry, I've realized that fashion is not really about the clothes, it's about the people. I'm Laura Van Root Poole, and this is What We Wore. Louise Rowe is a fashion journalist and television host turned entrepreneur who has recently launched Charland, England, an interiors collection with a nod to her great-grandmother. You'll love her stories about her time on air and her new journey as a business owner. Charland, England is a culmination of all of Louise's experiences and proof that success is never a straight line. Louise Rowe, I am so excited to talk to you, and I am talking to you from a really English rainy day in Charlotte. The whole week has been rainy and cool, and it's been so beautiful, and it really reminds me of being in in England. (laughs) You are in England. Are you English? Are you from there? I am English. I am sitting in our townhouse in London, very villagey, leafy parts of London and it is also raining so it is about <laughs> very typical as it gets I don't think spring has decided to arrive yet here well and different from the last time I saw you in Los Angeles where it was dry and beautiful and so sunny <laughs> so tell me you grew up in England where and what was your childhood like I grew up just outside London so but but pretty rural I had a very you know very lucky happy childhood and we our house which is still mum and dad's house is next to the woods so literally like horses riding by every morning and I think that was very fortunate because it just gave me a love of the outdoors but also and I know we'll get onto this, but I I was surrounded by, it wasn't a particularly old house, but we had a lot of antiques. And so that definitely grew my love for what I'm doing now, which is sort of making furniture and working in in the interiors world. But I think it was a very English upbringing and, and a happy one. And then I moved as an adult over to LA for 11 years, very different, you know, landscape <laughs> and lifestyle, but that was awesome too. And now we're back. And a lot of family around growing up. I know that you had a very influential great-grandmother. Will you tell me about her? Yes, absolutely. I I never met her. She died before I was born. But great-grandmother, Marjorie Charland, I'm literally looking at a photo of her that I keep on my dressing table mirror as a sort of inspiration and a sort of bit of an icon for Charland England which is my brand that I've named after her my mom was very close to her and she says that you know these memories of as a little girl Marjorie would go out for lunch or dinner always wearing white gloves but she was quite naughty and she would always order her pudding (laughs) first in a restaurant and the waitress (laughs) didn't know what to do with that And she entertained in this very glamorous, you know, cigarette holders, martinis, but also very relaxed. And I think when I started Charlotte England, that is really the spirit that I try to carry with it is a very nostalgic nod to entertaining where there aren't rules, actually. There's quite some joyful and laid back, but everything's beautiful and exquisite and handcrafted when it comes to the tabletop and, and the furniture around the table. But... I don't know. I always end up going back to her. She lived in Buenos Aires, I should probably add. Oh, wow. Um, I think, yes. And I think you just, that that completes the picture a bit. And BA is such a cool city. I have never been and I must. I, yeah, I, you have to go. Oh, it's so nice for us because it's the same time zone. So it's an 11 hour flight, but you, you know, you arrive just on normal time. You're not tired. <laughs> actually, <laughs> but it's a very is, good point. Yeah, it's so nice. You're known for fashion, but tell me what came first for you. Was it your love of fashion or journalism? 
Oh, that's such a good question. Journalism, actually. I grew up, my dad has always been a journalist and a publisher, and he wrote for many newspapers and magazines and still does, actually. And, and then he sort of launched his own small publishing company. And, and so he's always had that entrepreneurial spirit and a love of writing and traveling and interviewing people. And even now, if he meets new friends of mine, He's such a listener. He'll always he does it automatically without thinking. He's such a journalist. I watch him and he's like getting their story. And and I think that that transpired for sure. I remember at school loving to write and just learning about people. And I don't care if I'm interviewing a movie star or somebody on the street who's just interesting. It's just that love of getting the story and the history of something. So I did, I after I studied English literature at university, which I loved. I think it's funny when you look back retrospectively, God, the privilege to sit in a, in a lecture hall and hear about <laughs> your favorite author or poet and at the time you're a bit like oh when is this finishing I want to go to the pub <laughs> now I would love to do it all again but I really did enjoy my degree and then I went into magazines after that so I worked at Condé Nast and InStyle various publications and I I morphed between features and fashion so I think there was actually a fashion features department and that's where I ended up so it was a bit of both. We've talked to a lot of editors lately, and that that time when you started really was sort of the golden age of magazines in in London and and New York. Tell me yeah. about that time. You nailed it. I mean, <laughs> I I often talk to my dad because he was the era before that in the eighties, and I'm like, I think perhaps that was the real golden era where there were just stupid budgets, advertising <laughs> went bananas. You know, it was booming, and all these press trips and no rules. But we. I loved being in magazines then, mainly because there was no social media and no one had their phone at Fashion Week and you were very <laughs> much in the moment in a different way. And I think that was really cool, actually. I remember seeing Grace Coddington sketching on the front row at Fashion Week and and it was that I just, I revered these people. They were incredible. And so... That was my experience. But then I also now still go to Fashion Week in a very different capacity and, and it is it is a lot more digital. And that's great too. I think there are advantages to what's happened now. It's it's certainly less exclusive, you know, there's access for for all. And I think that's brilliant. But it was it was a kind of yeah, a golden era. I got so excited about like what I was gonna wear to the office. It was <laughs> everyone looked immaculate and it, I mean there were Devil Wears Prada moments too. But they're, then they're quite funny to look back on now. But also we wore heels like every day. Yes. Crazy I mean, heels. <laughs> totally. I, I really think I'm like, how am I still standing? Like, how do I, my legs still work? I know. After I all those years of that. In fact, can you imagine wearing heels to fashion? Well, you probably still do. I, I absolutely don't. But to fashion <laughs> shows, you know, because we're trudging around all over the place. And I just, I don't know. I just can't believe we did that. No, you're right. And and the parties afterwards. Oh. But, Thank God for loafers. Thank God they're sheep. <laughs> Thank God I, for loafers. I have them. Exactly. I'm wearing them today. Do you have a favorite column or a favorite piece that you wrote at that time? Well, I did actually write. I don't know if it's a favorite, but it's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> I wrote for a newspaper. They challenged me to basically make a dress out of a trash bag and wear it <laughs> to Milan Fashion Week, which of course I did. I was quite young. I don't think Condé Nast were thrilled about that piece because it was for an, it was for a different newspaper. But and I got photographed by you know the, the newspaper, and that was pretty funny. I mean, there were staples all over it. I wore huge heels, <laughs> like we discussed. 
But I think I bet it was fabulous too. Was it cute? I mean, it, end, it was from a distance. <laughs> I think it was cute. I don't know how that close <laughs> up. But things like I reviewed one of Alexander McQueen's last shows, and I mean, I I distinctly remember one because I used to do a little for GQ.com, so I would go to the men's shows too, and mm. I remember distinctly one men's show in Milan. It was just so creative and outrageous, like the places, the venues they would come up with. And it was in a underground station, like a tube. And you could, the the ground was shaking from the base. So you knew where the show was just from that. And you walk down these (laughs) stairs, it was all dark. And it was men's show where they had blacked out the irises of the model's eyes. So they just had these white (laughs) contact lenses. And it was so cool and creepy and just drama and I think that the theater of fashion week was mind-blowing and men's fashion I love too they in a way they don't take it as seriously yeah but also it just seems so much more laid back and I guess it's less personal because you're not thinking like oh I really want to wear that (laughs) or maybe you are actually I wear more of our our, the clothes from our men's store now than I do the women's I think no men's clothes are so beautifully made Yes, they are. And actually, you're so right. I had a, fr- a conversation with a friend last night at dinner. But his suit was exquisite. And I was like, take me to your tailor. <laughs> exactly. I want to get a suit made by them. <laughs> what was your first on-camera assignment? I was on BBC Breakfast News and I was talking about something bridal. I was at a bridal magazine at the time. And I remember being so nervous and I had written all these notes and like trying to memorize stuff. And it was a really quick but live segment and it went really well. And I, I actually got a call that afterwards from a BBC producer that was like, actually, could you come and we'd like you to test for hosting this other show. And that, and that began the the TV side of things. And um, did you love it instantly? I mean, was it natural? It, it um, didn't feel scary? No, I, it felt a bit scary, but more, I would say adrenaline buzz rather than mm. terrifying. And I, as soon as the lights went on, I did, I loved it. And I knew I wanted to do more. And did you ever have any training at all or was it all completely just learned on the job? Completely learned on the job. I think being a journalist <laughs> helped because I was already very used to going up to people and interviewing them. It was just yeah. that there was a camera and a light there. And then tell me about the move to LA. How did that come about? I used to go to LA to cover the Oscars when I was at Vogue.com and it was so much fun and Elton John's party and... <laughs> Getting onto these red carpets, I remember Armani, they don't do it very often. It was a one-off, but they did a a couture show right before the Oscars. And I ended up getting on the red carpet to interview people for Vogue. And, you know, the first person I spoke to was Leonardo DiCaprio, who, by the way, doesn't do red carpets and and (laughs) interviews very much at all. And then Katie Holmes, who had just got married. And then Martin Scorsese. And all the paps stopped shouting and they just went really quiet. And they were like, Mr. Scorsese, I've never seen paparazzi be so respectful of someone. (laughs) And it was, you know, these surreal moments. And I think on the side, I had a couple of meetings, managed to get an agent out there and and also a a contract with e-entertainment and I thought right I'm going to do this I'm just going to go for it and I think I was braver then than I am now I was 26 (laughs) and I just moved and I did it and I I I, you know I had I had a visa and an agent and I wasn't completely like oh dear I better you know go and waitress or something I did I was actually working in tv but but not in a big way I had to build up did you ever get tongue-tied no, I think honestly being English really helps out there. They like, 
I say out there, like you're out there, but there's a, there's an element, like if you came to London, it would be the same. They would say, oh, I love your accent. Where are you from? And that always <laughs> helps break the ice. So definitely played on that a bit. And um, no, I think I'm good at, I was, I'm just going to say a rude word, but like BSing if I need to live on air. So instead of tongue tied, I'm probably just gabbling away. <laughs> Did you have a favorite television project, one that sticks out above the others? Yes, it was for E! Entertainment. And actually, it was back here. I was their correspondent for the royal wedding, William and Kate, not... Oh, wow. And that was unreal. We had to get there at 2am with hair and makeup done. So basically, we didn't go to bed. <laughs> they shut all the roads in London by 2am. So you had to be in place. And we were in a uh, kind of like a purpose-built mini studio you know they put it up for the day and it was right opposite Buckingham Palace so I saw the flyover from the military I saw her kiss they saw the kiss oh my god on the balcony saw her drive by and that was very cool I did that with Juliana Rancic wow and how much preparation do you have in your position like did you know that the dress was going to be McQueen or Sarah Burton like did y'all know jewelry like did you know any of that stuff how do you know once it's happening I think they did break that it was Sarah Burton because I believe she they, she was photographed outside oh, the coming out. Yeah. I think we knew that. But when you do the Oscars, you kind of get that info as you're on the carpet. And so it's it's you checking your phone. It's a producer who's great with you going, I've just heard Emily Blunt's in Gucci. And then you suddenly see Emily Blunt arrive. So 10 seconds later, you're like, ah, you're wearing Gucci. Tell me about the dress. <laughs> I knew all along. It's so last minute because those stylists, they may change their mind literally as they're getting in the car. Yeah. So they don't tend to do that press release until that person is in their car on the way to the event. You've always been a fashion person. So are you always researching fashion? My dad always says like, how do you know? And I'm like, I, I've just been doing it my whole life. I do it all day, every day. Is it something that you have innate in you just a love for fashion? And do your producers have that? Because I think you'd have to have a common language to be able to even have them know that Alessandra Michele was at Gucci and was designing at that time, you know? A hundred percent. And I, the shows that I've worked on long-term, so in the US that was Access Hollywood and here it's a show very similar called This Morning, live morning show. And yes, my producer is very much knowledgeable about fashion. And I've done shows before where they're not and it is quite tricky because I'll I'll just take on the lion's share of the research. And if you're on air while you're doing that, which I have been before, it's it's not as fun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it is sort of a fashion nerd thing. Like you, you sometimes you get into the real world and you realize that like the stuff we know is pretty obscure. <laughs> totally. And the stuff that we get really excited about other people yeah, exactly. don't care. And you're like, <laughs> and then when did you start the front row? A really long time ago. I think it's about 10 years old. That's my blog. That's my sort of brand name for the fashion side of things. I remember launching it during New York Fashion Week and I was up till two or three in the morning every day finalizing it with this fantastic girl who was working with me. And um, that, I'm. do you know, a lot of people have shut their blogs down yeah. in the last few years. And I am a real believer in it. I think it's because of coming from a magazine background. I love writing. I love yeah. putting a shoot together. And I still have a really strong readership. And I I love that. Like I, I, I write two or three articles a week for it. And I think that's really important to me. It's also, I remember someone once said, well, actually she's the founder of Reward Style now, LTK, Amber. She said, it's the only thing you actually own. Like social media, yeah. you don't own any of it. 
So having that kind of back catalogue and library of pictures and articles, and it sometimes the articles that do the best are a couple of years old even. People go back to things all the time, my wedding staff and baby staff. Mm-hmm. So I, I love having that. Love that. So you've worked in magazines and television, fashion, and now interiors. How do you have the courage to continue to sort of shift gears and pivot? I I guess that's two answers. One, I do think that they are very linked. It's a creative aesthetic feeling and that need to just create something, photograph it. And also with a marketing hat, how are you going to promote it and use the channels and the audience to now sell something but and and what's the story behind it because on on my Charlotte England website which is essentially an e-commerce site I still have a blog section and I I write tips for it that's really important that there's a takeaway there and I hope that customers see that actually I'm showing you how I would style it on the table or in a room and you know, my guide to London. It's not just all about like, here's a product, buy it, you know. And then the other answer I think is, it is and was scary. I'm I'm learning all the time. I'm definitely not standing there going, I know, I know everything that I'm doing and, you know, it's a work in progress. But when what I feel so passionately about is, is this lovely feeling of like, finding artisans all over the world who are just incredible at their craft working with them and and I just feel like overflowing with ideas all the time so in my mind if if something makes you feel passionate and you've got loads of ideas you should you should follow it to do it what's been the hardest transition so far and and what was it like moving back home the side of it that all creatives hate spreadsheets (laughs) (laughs) I'm like trying to embrace it all and actually I've got a friend who works in finance and tech and he's been amazing we've got complete opposite brains and I I was going oh but I can't and he was like stop saying that this is your company you can understand the spreadsheet own it and I was like okay touche you're right (laughs) and I think it's just being brave and you know I can I can talk to to the accountants and stuff no but I, I actually quite enjoy looking at that side of things margins and projections and 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 also I mean so many clever people have said hire people who are better than you in those areas and that's exactly what I'm doing and yeah your other question about moving back to be honest I was really ready to move back we did 11 years in LA and that's quite long for that city I will always love it but it's such a tragic <laughs> place it's a long time <laughs> I think so it was also good timing it was right before COVID we just had a second no sorry we hadn't I had a one daughter now I've got two and I I think my husband would have stayed longer but I was I really missed Europe not just England but I wanted I missed all those amazing European cities full of culture and history and Um, and Los Angeles is really far away it is I mean it really is it's a long flight it's far from you guys, let alone. Yeah, I mean, it's four hours from us, but I mean, from you, it's like a whole, it's a big, it's a, it's a it's commitment. True. <laughs> it's like halfway New York. So yes, New York from London is not much, but you double that, you get to LA. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about Charlotte, England and how that emerged. I think a lot of people during that first lockdown had a moment to breathe and their head got to breathe. And I had that moment. I knew I was not as creatively fulfilled as I had wanted to be for a while. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I knew I didn't want to rush into anything. If it's not right, it doesn't feel right. And, and it was genuinely that sort of first lockdown. It was, I remember the, the weather was beautiful. We had just finished 
restoring a very old house in the countryside. And I was like, boom, that is it. I want to make beautiful rattan furniture. Where do I start? And I spent two years researching, calling people who then would introduce me to their friends. And the generosity of spirit in the interiors world is incredible. I was so blown away by people's kindness and tips and also warnings like, oh, don't do this because that is what I did. And we wasted all this time and money on it. And and I gradually formed a plan and started sketching things and found the right partners to work with and then started producing samples. And it and it was a really long process. But well, I think it's normal, to be honest, to spend that long if you're going to yeah. start. Me. And then but lucky, we'll- lucky that it happened during during the pandemic when you didn't really notice how long it was probably <laughs> no exactly exactly but it's yeah you know samples back and forth it's time consuming yeah. but brilliant and ha- and when did you realize that it had the potential to be its own business I planned that from the start I did want it yeah. to be its own business yes that was always in in my idea I mean I think I didn't write the business plan until much later but that's that's okay too, because I think I had a better idea of what it was and what I wanted it to, it to be by then. And what was the first product? Actually, I launched with 10 rattan products, five furniture, five accessories. I hoped, and it is, our hero product is the Hadley tray, which is scalloped. There's a signature braiding with loops underneath it, which is sort of, a, I hope, a recognizable Charlotte England trait motif and that's on across all the products there's a cash po for plants or actually got a waste paper bin I use it as a waste paper bin that comes in three different sizes a fruit bowl and now have a second fruit bowl and then what I think did very well was a console table and a bench so the furniture is not now it's bigger I have a new collection but at the beginning it was actually quite small because I thought well I'm, I knew my audience is quite millennial and they are often renting rather than bought the house. Mm. So if you are in a city apartment, you want to have lovely furniture, but very often it's huge. And what has the demographic been like? Has it been who you thought it would be? I think so. It is millennial and slightly older. Mm. It's It's about 60% US, which is awesome. And it's, very female I yeah I mean it is what I want to you know a lot of <laughs> women that work in fashion or home or not that it's not all that kind of same industry but people who I think the 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 big common denominator is people who care and know about craft and they want to know the detail behind how it's made so for example I've got three collections of tablecloths and one is cotton and two are hand loomed linen and, and they're much more expensive, the, the two linens and they're hand embroidered. And and those are the ones that funnily enough sell way more than the cotton. And hmm. that is quite nice because there's a element of people wanting a something more luxurious, but I think the fact that it is hand embroidered and they they want to know and they want to know the detail behind it and what is the cross stitching and how is the ruffle done and I love that I, I mean what's better than making something with care and then having a customer who appreciates that and wants to know about it exactly back to your journalism background I mean the fact that you can write about it certainly you can show images of it but were you afraid about it connecting with an audience and being online so solely online to start I mean, dream to have a shop. I have a whole folder on how it would look and what else is going to be in there. And that, you know, that one day, but that's in a huge expense for a startup. So, and, and, and during the COVID time, you know, it wasn't, it wouldn't have been a smart decision. I think nowadays online 
is so incredibly sharp with the quality of photos we don't do video but you can you know see often see a dress moving being walked around mm. and I think that it's it's pretty well represented in terms of knowing what it looks like yes you can't touch it but we do a lot of pop-ups and that with that purpose in mind so again you're in a completely different world do you have do you have anybody guiding you through the process of the production and the warehouses and all of that part or have you just made it up as you've gone along? Which, which, I, which I've kind of done. I mean, I, <laughs> I think a lot of pe- more people than you think. I listen to so many podcasts about founders and it's quite comforting in a way that they're like, you know, I just kind of wing that. I definitely, uh, you know, I expected to make mistakes and that I think is good in a way because it, a lot of it is learning. You'll never get it right first time all the time. And so there has been a lot of trial and error, but I have got, I have definitely got mentors, not within the company externally, friends who have been helpful and I still go to for advice. For example, we are about to open a warehouse in the US, which is a huge step for any brand. And that I checked a lot, discussed a lot with the people that I trust and who have already done it in their various industries. So I wasn't just going to go ahead and do that. But now as the company's growing, I do have employees or, you know, at least freelancers who are incredibly experienced in various areas. And how did you find the artisans and, and where are they located? Are they all over the world or? They are. I found them honestly from going down rabbit holes on <laughs> none of them have like proper websites. It's all kind of secretive for a reason, I suppose. <laughs> friends, friends, whispers. I mean, I've like found a random plate in a market and tried to decipher what it said on the bottom, but it was half scrubbed out. So you're like, does it say this? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, and, and, then, and then getting people who speak like my mum speaks Portuguese. So I'm like, right, mum, you're going to make a phone call tomorrow. And uh, <laughs> it, it really is that scrappy. And I think then you find the right people. But I actually have been lucky enough to find predominantly women who are not so much an agent. It's a bit less official than that, but they are the sort of intermediary. So they will know the artisans. For example, the linens are made in India and the rattan in Java. The plates are a mix between Italy and Spain, a little bit of Portugal. And I love that that's our spread around the world, you know. And it's so where I I feel like I I design everything, but I want to use the techniques and the look that is quite indigenous to that culture. So the plates feel very Spanish if they're made in Spain. You know, there is that with a bit of a tweak for my, my aesthetic. Do you have any funny stories about tracking down the artisan for an order? A lot of times they don't have phones or emails. <laughs> yeah, I, so I had a, it's the Pintora collection and the last pieces are still online. It's slowly almost gone. And that is a very old Spanish man. It's made by one man only in Spain, in rural Spain. He doesn't have a phone. He doesn't have a computer and he doesn't speak English. So he used to take, his son would take a photo <laughs> of a handwritten, you know, performer. Or- oh my God, I love that so much. And he retired. I had an incredibly big VIP who I can't really say, but given what's happening next weekend in the UK, gives you a clue. And they wanted more plates and he retired and he sold his kiln. So I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> so I, I I very politely asked him to borrow another kiln in the village. 
and make some more plates, which bless him, he did. He came out, did he found a kiln, sent me the plate. Oh my God, I love that. I love that. What do you think your great grandmother would have thought about what you've created? Oh, I hope she would be (laughs) proud. I know my mum's really happy that there's that link there because she was so close to her. But that's a good question. I hope she would be proud. What do you hope Charlotte England looks like in five years? I've always said I don't want to run before we can walk. So, of course, I'm I'm a businesswoman and I would like to grow. But I also want to do it with integrity. I would like a team who love their job and are proud to work for this brand. I think I would love to be all over the US, but in the right shops and like, you know, you guys. <laughs> You know, doing doing some really cool events and having a really dedicated customer that comes back and back time and time again. I think perhaps more the eight or nine year plan is to have a shop that will have a little barista and a flower area and, you know, books, dreamland. But I can't I'm not sure that'll be within five years. And as this is happening, how will you keep up with the front row and how do you do that? How do you split your week and and do all of it (laughs) well I do feel like my head spins off a bit I think because at the moment I need to have both I am and I enjoy both I actually really do I love getting up in the studio and still doing the tv side or working with a fashion brand on a campaign but I do most days sit down at my desk with a cup of tea at 5 30 in the morning and I do about an hour and a half before my girls wake up and I don't want to do that forever and ever but I'm pretty boring. I'm like doing, well, I say boring. I love it. I'm really inspired by it, but there aren't many late nights. I'm I'm pretty in bed by like 9.30. Otherwise I just can't really sustain it. That was what I was going to ask too, is like, what's the constant that brings you joy throughout the different parts of your career? What's the thing that keeps on bringing you back and, and makes you passionate and excited about it? I think the variety, because there is no day that looks the same as the next. There are also weeks where, like recently, there was a week where it was a lot of putting fires out and a lot of accountancy stuff. And I was like, this sucks. I don't like the five thirty starts. But if I'm getting up to like uh, talk about an event in L.A., to you know finalize get the samples through from we're about to launch candles and we've just had the final box and it looks amazing you know the creative side creating something but then yeah people listening to people like one of the first customers bought what the bunny bench and she said that I'm going to hand this down to my daughter one day it's such a sort of a, a piece to keep forever and that that kind of feedback is absolutely so exciting and and that's yeah. why And I also hope, and not to be too deep, but that my daughters will be raised with a working mum who is proud of her career and who enjoys it and that that they see that as a sort of positive thing. I remember before I left LA, I had dinner with someone super senior at L'Oreal. She's amazing. And she said, never apologise for working to your kids because, you know, we do. I'm always feeling guilty, like, oh, I've Mm. not done enough of this. And she said, don't ever apologize. You know, say that you, you you enjoy it and, you know, you've got a meeting. You're really excited about it. And I've really taken that on board as much as possible because they feed off what we give them. So, yeah, I hope they. Thank see you for it. that. I think I needed that this morning. <laughs> I know. And, you know, I talked to my husband and he's like, God, you women give yourself such a hard time. Like dad guilt does not exist. <laughs> no, it does not. Trust me. <laughs> you've said that. Nothing you have learned is ever wasted. Do you feel that with Charlotte and England? Did I say that? 
Um, <laughs> I no, I can't. In my re- in my research, you did say that. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Well, that's that's, that's how wise of me. I do agree. Yes, with myself, it's it's not because I think you know if you read any book by successful entrepreneurs the path to success is never a straight line that you know people have always failed in various ways but it's not really a failure because you've you learn so much and and i know it sounds cheesy but things do happen for a reason and it's it takes a while often to realize that and see where it brought you to i i think just trusting in that process and surrounding yourself with the right people who you trust is the best way and and yeah no one's gonna have like a bump free ride and, and this does seem like a total combination of all of your experiences rolled into one yeah I love that you say that because I I hope so I mean even renovating our house in the UK when we moved back I started sharing it because it was more it was less of a renovation and it was more restoring this beautiful old Georgian farmhouse and I started sharing it and asking people do you know where we might find an old Victorian tile that matches this and people were responding so much it was like (laughs) oh this is kind of cool like there's a nice community very interested in home so that was something that I didn't really think would be part of it but it is. We ask everybody on, on the podcast what they wore to prom, and I've had so many <laughs> British guests that I'm, uh, but I know you'll have, you know, end of school marquee events. We just talked to Wiggy March last week. <laughs> Do you have a prom-like event and dress that you, that you can tell me about? Embarrassing or not? <laughs> That's a sucky answer. I didn't go to prom. We did, I did go to university where they had lots of like, balls and, and and formal events and things but I mean it was terrible my fashion then it was like <laughs> the early 2000s I don't have like a specific one but it was it was the end of the sort of Spice Girl era so there were a lot of very like low slung baggy <laughs> trousers going on although those are like back now anyway yeah exactly um, yeah no I don't have a specific any, one how about any how about a, any embarrassing fashion moments um, on, a, on air I did <laughs> I've been all right with that. I did wear a a lovely dress. I was hosting the MTV Awards and I think they were in Frankfurt and I wore, it had a metal, a thick metal belt though. And it was so tight and obviously like solid metal. I ended up with bruised ribs from that. And I will never <laughs> forget that. I was like, they're suffering for fashion. And then there's this, this is not. <laughs> That's abuse, again. abuse. Exactly. You've got to stand in it for hours when you're on the red carpet. Oh, my God. I I appreciate you talking with us so much today. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. It was a joy. It was a joy. Thank you so much, Louise. Thank you. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. dot com.